Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for making it to this, this evening's lecture. Uh, my name is Marta Costas, and for those of you who wonder, I am the chair of the LSE Alumni Entrepreneurs Group and also director of my very own company, Grand Fair. Uh, it is my very pleasure to introduce today to James Watt. Um, in 2007, James and his best friend, Martin Dickey, set up a, a tiny brewery with a very big goal, which was to introduce a completely new concept that would uh, disrupt the beer industry and to completely change the beer drinking culture. Now, fast forward about 10 years, nine years, and uh, BrewDog is one of the fastest growing breweries. It is a massive record-breaking company, but the very mission continues to be to disrupt the culture and to make everybody as passionate as they are about drinking good craft beer. Today, James is here to introduce his book, uh, Business for Punks. Now, I've had the pleasure to read this book over Christmas, and I can attest it's one of the best books about um, business from a completely new and radical perspective. Um, we will have a chance to do some book signings. Uh, there will be some copies of the book that will be sold outside after the event. And we will also have some time for Q&A, about 15 minutes for Q&A after the lecture. Before we introduce James, though, a few housekeeping rules. For those of you who tweet, uh, the hashtag for this evening's event is hashtag LSEPunks. That's hashtag LSEPunks. Um, LSEPunk, sorry. Hashtag LSEPunk, made mistake. Um, for uh, those of you who use social media, please do keep your phones on silent uh, as this event will be uh, recorded and hopefully be uh, made available via podcast on the LSE website. And uh, now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming James. Hello. How's everyone doing tonight? Good? Um, just so I know how in-depth to pitch my economics sections, how many of you guys are economics students? It's going to be all over everyone else's head. It's okay. Um, I'm kidding. There's no economics in this at all. So um, I'm going to tell you guys the story of our company, of how we started with two humans, one dog, and a big mission in 2007, a company that's now got over 600 people. I'm going to speak about the five key things that we've used to to take us on that journey, and I'm also going to speak a bit about the book that I published in November last year, which is uh, Business for Punks. So Business for Punks, according to the Financial Times, has got too many metaphors and over-enthusiastic use of adjectives. <laughs> but fuck them, because, <laughs> because the Scunthorpe Telegraph said it was an indispensable guide to business in the 21st century, so... <laughs> I, uh, I definitely had the last laugh there. <laughs> um, hopefully, you're all going to take some notes. At the end of this lecture, there's going to be a multiple-choice quiz, and the winner gets to go on a date with me. So something for, something for everyone there. Um, before I speak too much about the company, I'm going to show you a video that um, kind of really encapsulates what we do as a business. So in 2005, I started making beer at home. At that time, I was working as a captain in the North Atlantic, and I used to use my spare time to make beer at home with my best friend, Martin. And we started making beers at home because we couldn't find any beers in the UK that we wanted to drink ourselves. The UK beer scene, 2005, 
completely dominated by the generic mass market monolithic fizzy insipid liquid cardboard beers made by faceless multinational corporations and we didn't want to drink any of that so we're looking out and seeing this kind of new wave of beers coming from California coming from America and those were the types of beers that we wanted to make at home and in 2006 uh, we got the opportunity to meet Michael Jackson um, Michael Jackson the famous uh, famous beer and whiskey author um, not not Michael Jackson the the pop star I was 24 at the time too old to meet Michael Jackson the pop star so anyway we met um, <laughs> We met Michael Jackson, the beer and whiskey author, who at that time was the, the world's leading authority on, on beer and whiskey. He sadly passed away now. And we let him taste a beer that we made at home. And we were like, oh my God, this is Michael Jackson tasting a beer that we made at home. He tasted it. And we're like, oh my God, what's he get to say? Put the glass down, looked at us quite sternly, and says, boys, quit your jobs and start making beer. And that was pretty much the last bit of advice we ever listened to. Um, we thought, what the hell? If uh, Michael Jackson's saying that to us, let's do it. So we got a £30,000 bank loan. This was late 2006, so just before the global economy went into a tailspin. So we got a £30,000 bank loan. We got £20,000 of our own savings. And we set out on a mission to make other people's passionate about fantastic beer as, as we were. We leased a um, 2,000 square feet industrial unit from the council and a dystopian derelict industrial estate up in the northeast of Scotland. Um, we were next door to a company who positioned themselves as, as the godfather of carpets. And they also had the sign outside, somewhat optimistically, must be seen to be believed. Which just piles of carpet, easy to believe that. But anyway, so that was what was next, uh, next door to the godfather of carpets. And uh, we set up the business with 50,000, which is not much given the type of equipment we had to buy. So this was bag, borrow, barter, bootleg. We had second-hand dairy tanks that we modified ourselves. We did all the work setting up the facility because we couldn't afford to pay anyone to come in and do the, the work for us. I remember one day setting up this facility, I managed to electrocute myself and fall off a ladder in the same day. So two visits to the hospital in one day, getting this facility set up. And the whole thing that underpins everything we do is just that passion we have for fantastic beer. So we're so excited to be, to be started out in this journey. We were massively naive as to the entire thing, as to what the hell we were supposed to be doing, but we didn't care. We'd never done a business before. We'd no experience at all, but we were determined. We were committed. We were passionate, and we were really excited to have some fun and, and see where we could take this thing. Definitely didn't start off well. The first batch of beer that we made... It was Punk IPA, which is our flagship beer. And we've called it Punk IPA because we think it's a modern dare rebellion against beers which are bland, tasteless, and mass market. So we like to think punk has got the same attitude towards incumbents of the beer market that the old school punks had to, to pop culture. This was a beer that we made at home. This was a beer that we started with. Batch number one, we got up at 5 a.m., super excited. We put on Radiohead OK Computer, which was our favourite beer making music, and we mashed in. Unfortunately, in our enthusiasm, uh, my mobile phone, my car keys, and a mercury thermometer ended up in the mash tun as well. So 
uh, we didn't want to poison anyone, so the whole first batch was condemned. The second batch, uh, to save money, we bought some really cheap hose to connect our kettle to the fermentation tanks. That hose made the whole second batch taste like plastic. So uh, since then, we've only bought the most expensive hose we could find as well. But um, the whole second batch had to be dumped, so I had to go to the bank and get credit cards to get £500 to get malt and hops to make the third batch, and the third batch worked out quite well. But the first year and a half, it was insanely tough. Two humans, one dog, and we did absolutely everything. We both moved back in with our parents because we couldn't afford to pay ourselves for the first two years. We slept in sacks of malt on the floor. We did the accounts. We filled bottles by hand, which was 150 bottles an hour. We did the deliveries. We did the accounts. I bust the suspension in my car going door to door selling our beer. We sold our beer at farmer's markets and just to different local accounts. We lost money every single month for the first year, and everyone told us to do things differently. So we're hardly selling any beer. People said, make your beer more cheaply, make your beer with less hops, change your names, change your packaging. But we were determined if we were going to fail, we were going to fail in our terms and fail doing something that we were passionate about. I remember one time it was a, we hit an especially low point. I'd been selling beer door-to-door local bars and restaurants out the back of my car and I'd sold one case for the whole day and I went into this account and gave it my best sales pitch New Zealand hops, Scottish malt, handmade, full flavour like my best impassioned sales pitch and the guy tasted it and just spat it back into the glass, the owner and said to me, listen mate, I don't like any beer that's got hops in it and I think, well, (laughs) do uh, do I argue with this idiot? Or do I just put the case back in the boot of my car and wonder what the hell I'm going to tell the bank the next day because we can't pay our bank loan back? And, and that's what I did. So we were really struggling, and the market up in the northeast of Scotland wasn't quite ready for the beers that we were making, and that was kind of where we were focused on. And at that same time, we found out about a, a Tesco beer competition. So we sent some samples, and I kind of forgot about it and got back to trying to sell beer out of the boot of my car and sleeping in sacks of malt on the floor and bottling by hand. And six weeks later, we got a phone call from Tesco saying that we'd finished first, second, third, and fourth in the Tesco beer competition. So <laughs> it's like, okay. So I went down to, I went down to London, well, Chessant, Tesco HQ, and met with the Tesco buyer there. And I was sitting there and he says, James, we love your beers. We want to put them in 400 stores nationwide. We can sell 2,000 cases a week and we'd like this to start in four months' time. And I sat there with my best poker face and didn't mention anything at all about the fact this was two guys and one dog filling bottles by hand. (laughs) And at most, we could make 250 cases a week. So I got back, I accepted the listing, um, shook hands with the guy, got back and had to put a plan in place with no money, with no business experience, with no idea what we were doing, and we had this listing with Tesco starting in four months. So we went to our bank... And that was in 2008, so this was financial crisis, banks in a tailspin, lending completely cut off, and went to our bank, which was Bank of Scotland. We put on a suit, because we thought that might help our case. Um, Put on a suit, went to the bank, and said to the guys there, we've got this amazing deal with Tesco, but we're going to need £100,000 for a new bottling line, we're going to need £50,000 for new fermentation tanks, but look how much beer we can sell, this is going to be amazing. And the bank just laughed at us. They were like, guys, you're not even paying the £30,000 loan back. There's no way we can give you more money here. It's, it's just, sorry, but we can't, we can't do anything at all. 
So we went to the bank across the street, HSBC. We'd still got our suits on. We'd still got our kind of figures and bits and pieces. And we said to the guys at HSBC, our bank, Bank of Scotland, they've just offered us a fantastic finance deal on a, <laughs> on a bottling line and some fermentation tanks. But if you guys can match this deal, we're going to shift all our bank into you. We're a young, up-and-coming company. We've got, a, we've got a deal coming up with Tesco, but we need this money to kind of go to the next level. And, uh, and they gave us the funding we, we needed. So, <laughs> um, Business plan for the first two years, make hoppy American beers and tell lies to banks. Maybe that's still the business plan now, who knows. <laughs> so we, we, got the bottling line, we got the bottling line in. Uh, the bottles come off the bottling line two weeks before they were due to go to Tesco. Uh, we got the Tesco listing and, and we kicked off from there. And that kind of jolted us to start looking further afield than the northeast of Scotland. It was a kind of shock to the system that we needed. So the Tesco listing went well. Soon Sainsbury's picked us up. Soon we started selling to some accounts in London and that got some momentum. That got some momentum behind our business and we're soon able to start employing a few people and, uh, and adding people to the team as well. And uh, you'd notice one gentleman in the, in the video that we just shown. He's been with us since, uh, since 2008. He was our second full-time employees, uh, Narayananan, he's an Indian gentleman, and at the time that we employed him, he was working in Nigeria. And I just put an advert online that we were looking to hire someone in the company, and he sent me a CV, and I sent him an email back saying, yeah, it's a nice CV, let's talk. And then he sent me this list of demands as to things that he wanted. He wanted an amount of money, company car with driver, private medical, um, just this kind of whole list of things. I think the number was like 45,000. I just sent him an email back saying, look, at this moment in time, there's no way we can offer more than 24,000 with none of those benefits or anything. Two seconds later, my phone rang and he said, I'm delighted to accept your job offer. <laughs> I said, well, it wasn't really a job offer, but I admire how ballsy you are, so let's do this thing. So yeah, he's, uh, he's been with us ever since and been a, been a key part of our team. So at that time as well, we started looking to some export markets and for the type of beers that we make, a few of the export markets were more developed than, than the beer market in the UK, but it's tough. No budget, no experience, no idea about international sales at all. How do we, how do, we do that? And we didn't want to, we hate sales as a company. Sales is this thing for businesses that don't have something that people want to buy. So we didn't want to kind of cold call distributors and push sales and do that thing because that's not what we believe in. So we decided, okay, we want to sell beer in Sweden, we want to sell beer in Denmark. So we found out who the best beer bloggers were in Sweden and Denmark. We sent them an email, we sent them some samples. And they covered our beer in their blogs and they got some great reviews. Then all of a sudden we'd got the best distributors in Sweden and Denmark coming to us and we could choose who we wanted to work with, who was aligned with what we do. So with a zero budget, we were able to get the best distributors in these countries fighting over us. We started selling our beer there and that really helped build their business as well. And now, 60% of what we do is international, so most of the beer that we make goes overseas and we sell our beers in 55 countries. The initial expert strategy was just to send beer to places that we wanted to go and visit ourselves because we didn't get much time off and that kind of that worked out quite well for us. So from kind of 2007 to that point, which is up to about 2010, and even today, everything for us is underpinned by the love we have for fantastic beer. So we want to put the taste, the flavour, the artisan craftsmanship back into people's beer glasses. So for the last 50 years, beer has been commoditised, 
bastardized by these huge multinational corporations than they spend billions of dollars and pounds in advertising trying to convince people that this bland, insipid, chemical-fueled liquid is what beer should be. And so many people have kind of fallen down this rabbit hole and we want to kind of shock people and get people thinking about beers in slightly different ways. So as well as making our everyday beers, such as Punk IPA, Dead Pony Club, the beers you can buy in the supermarket, we always wanted to do things which challenge people's perceptions of what beer is, of what beer can be, that pushes the envelope in terms of flavour. And we decided, it was back in 2009, to try and make the strongest beer that had ever been made in the UK. So we, we made an 18% beer and we called, it, we called it Tokyo. Now, it's super difficult to make a beer to 18%. It involves using a champagne yeast. It involves a fermentation over a period of six weeks. It involves drip-feeding sugar and enzymes into the beer to keep the fermentation going over that period of time. So this was something we made a tiny batch of. It was for connoisseurs, it was for aficionados, it was for beer geeks. And nothing could have prepared us for the backlash that we got from the mainstream media in the UK when we launched this beer at 18%. Um, the headline in the, in the Sun, there was a picture of Tokyo, a cutout of my head, and the headline was, binge drinking, blame this man, which is uh, <laughs> kind of missing the point somewhat. The beer was banned by the Scottish government, and there was just this kind of huge backlash, and it kind of drove us a little bit crazy because it was, we're trying to elevate the status of beer. We want people to know more about beer, understand it and appreciate it, and we feel the more someone can understand something, the less likely they are to abuse it. But those kind of pleas fell in deaf ears, so we made a follow-up beer, which was a kind of protest beer about the backlash and about it being banned in Scotland, which was a 0.5% beer, so essentially non-alcoholic, which we called Nanny State. Um, that beer, which started off as a joke, is uh, now the biggest selling non-alcoholic beer in Scandinavia, which is kind of cool, so um, maybe something good did come out of the Tokyo thing. So after Tokyo, we, we, we wanted to kind of make an even stronger beer, so we set our sights on making the strongest beer that had ever been made. So beer's been made now for over 5,000 years, and we wanted to make the strongest beer that had ever been made. And we took this German beer-making tech. Don't worry, the economic bits is coming. There's plenty of economics for all you students. Um, the, we took a German technique which throws a beer. So if you make beer really cold, the first thing that turns to ice is the water, so you can concentrate the aroma, but you're also bumping up the ABV. So we used a local ice cream factory up in the northeast of Scotland to take, take a beer up to 32%. And at that time, that was the strongest beer that had ever been made. We called it Tactical Nuclear Penguin because of how we made it. We sold it for £35 a bottle. People loved it. It was a huge news story. We then got into a battle with a German company. They were making stronger beers, and it was kind of a bit of a kind of news story at the time. And we made a 41% one called St. the Bismarck. They made a stronger one. And eventually, we wanted to do something which which um, fused our three favourite things together, which is beer, art and taxidermy. We wanted to do something that was as beautiful as it was disturbing. We wanted to do something that shocked people into thinking about beer in a different way. So we made a 55% beer. We made 12 bottles, but we packaged it in roadkill. So we packaged it in taxidermed stoats and, and squirrels. We made uh, 12 bottles. We sold them all out on our website in five minutes. And we sold them for £750 each. And there's a few that's actually in museums and stuff dotted about just now. So it definitely caused a few shockwaves. Martin got a few death threats from PETA at the time as well. But <laughs> you're, ne you're never going to keep everyone happy, so it's fine. <laughs> um, 
because we've done quite well as the kind of company has evolved and stuff as well, we've kind of done quite well in a few uh, in a few different business competitions. And in 2010, we were also lucky enough to be named Scottish Business of the Scottish Business of the Year. Sit down. I was also lucky enough to be named Scottish Business of the Year. And I was quite surprised that we that we won that award. Um, I was filling out the entry form. It was late at night. It was coming up for midnight. I'd been up since uh, five o'clock that morning trying to fix our son of a bitch bottling machine. And uh, I was caught in this kind of late night dilemma. I wanted to do well in the competition. I wanted to get the publicity for our business, but I also just wanted to go to bed. So I answered the first nine questions quite diligently. And then I got to question 10. Question 10 was, in less than 200 words, please describe your company's position on social, ethical, corporate responsibility. Now, at that time, we were a three-year-old company. Our responsibility was to make sure we could pay our staff at the end of the month. We weren't adopting baby pandas. We weren't saving the rainforest. We weren't helping old ladies do their shopping. And I thought, do I make something up? Do I fudge it? Should I be honest? Yeah, so this mini late night ethical dilemma. In the end, the fact that I wanted to go to bed won out, and I ended up typing something quite ill-advised in the box, pushing send and closing the laptop. Uh, what I typed in the box was, I'm not fucking Mother Teresa. So, <laughs> maybe a bit too hard, but um, we, uh, we, we, we won the competition. So afterwards... <laughs> Afterwards, I spoke to the judge and I was like, dude, what the hell were you thinking? Did you not see the answer to question 10? And the judge was like, yeah, but you're a young, edgy company. And all the other companies just made up some bullshit about helping pandas do their shopping or something. And we kind of like your company ethos. Thanks very much. Um, So as a consequence of winning the Scottish award, we got shortlisted for for the European award, European Young Business of the Year. Um, I was out in the US at the time, but Martin, uh, my best friend and the guy I set the business up with, he had to go to, uh, to Italy to meet the judging panel um, to meet the judging panel and do a presentation. And I thought it would be fun if I didn't tell him anything at all about this form that I'd filled in a, a few months ago. And the judging panel's amazing. Heads of state, president of Romania is there, members of the European Parliament, leaders of, of European industry, so... Martin gets there, he's excited, he starts doing a presentation, and as he starts doing a presentation, the judges are nonchalantly flicking their way through this entry form that I filled in. Uh, The president of Romania, God bless him, was the first guy to get to question 10. But to make matters worse, his English wasn't that good. So, opposed to him reading the sentence to mean, I'm not saintly good, he read the sentence to mean, I'm not having international relations with a dead, uh, a dead peace icon. Um, just before Martin was asked to leave, his exact words to Martin were, stop, stop, young man, why you no fuck Mother Teresa? <laughs> and uh, that, is the, that is the last time we entered any business competitions. <laughs> so another thing that's been, that's been key to what we've done is our market and philosophy has always been, and our business philosophy, to try and shorten the distance as much as possible between ourselves and the people who enjoy the beers that we make. We made our first video blogs back in 2007. 
It was with a £120 video camera that we bought from Argos. We filmed it ourselves. We learned how to edit them ourselves. And we put them on our website. And the videos that we made started to get a bit of a following. So much so that in 2010, an American TV company got hold of our videos and for some bizarre reason thought we'd be half decent at hosting an American TV show about beer. So we went out to Los Angeles. We made a pilot episode. Um, we had a huge argument as to whether they needed subtitles on us for an American audience or not. <laughs> uh, they were determined to use subtitles, but we managed to get off without using subtitles. And uh, we've now made 30 episodes across three seasons. We're just about to start our fourth season. It's the longest uh, done in beer show in TV history. And it's a way that we've been able to connect and engage and educate people about beer with no budget, and it all came off the back of these DIY little videos that we made ourselves. Here's a little snapshot of what we do with our TV show. Um, you'd have noticed my quite unorthodox, unorthodox technique for milking a cow. <laughs> Before they could put that in American TV, the network lawyers had to check as to whether or not that constituted bestiality. <laughs> It didn't, something that both myself and my wife are happy about. <laughs> yeah, it, the TV show, we have, we have so much fun with it, and it's just um, a great way to kind of spread the message and get people's passion about fantastic beer as we are. So one of the key things that kind of game-changed things for us as a business has been what we, what we call equity for punks. Equity for Punks was born in 2010. It was born out of complete frustration. At that time, we had lines of credit with four different banks. We've tried the lion and suit thing so many times, and we couldn't push the banks any further. We needed to expand our business. We were forced to come up with a way to do things completely differently. So with Equity for Punks, we formulated a plan to sell equity stakes in our company on our website to the people who enjoy the beers that we make. And this was a few years before crowdfunding had became a thing. So we spoke to six different legal companies and asked them if we, what we wanted to do was possible. And they all told us it wasn't, or it was going to cost half a million, or this or that. Determined, we eventually got the seventh legal company to take a gamble on us and find a way to, to do this. So we set up Equity for Punks. We gambled our entire future on making Equity Punks a success. The legal fees for us, the audit, the verification, all these bits and pieces was going to cost £100,000. At that time, we got £50,000 in the bank. And the first time we launched it, it went, it went well. And then since then, we've kind of built on it and built on it. We now have a community of 35,000 Equity Punk investors. So we've had 35,000 people invest in our company online. So this is a completely new business model for a 21st century consumer brand. Our business philosophy has always been to shorten the distance as much as possible between ourselves and the people who enjoy the beers that we make. And for us, Equity for Punks is the ultimate incarnation of that philosophy. And we also don't see ourselves as having 35,000 investors. We think we've got 35,000 advocates, 35,000 ambassadors, 35,000 people who are going to tell their friends about the company, about the beers that we make that's going to take them to the bars and restaurants that we have. So our equity punk community are the heart and soul of our business. 
And to have that community around about what we do has enabled us to grow as fast as we have over the last four years. So over the last four years, we've been the fastest growing food and drinks company in the UK each year. And we've only been able to do that because of our equity punk business model. We've got our AGM coming up in Aberdeen in, uh, in two and a half months' time. Our AGM is the best attended AGM in the UK. Last year, we had 6,000 people come up to Aberdeen to attend our AGM, as well as all the kind of businessy things that we have to do with amazing music, with Twin Atlantic, with Idlewild, with amazing beer tastings. It's just a huge party for us and our equity punks. Also, perhaps equally importantly, we've used Equity Punk so far to raise £25 million of finance into our business. So the current round of Equity Punks that's open, Equity Punks 4, has raised £30 million so far, making it the world's biggest online equity <laughs> crowdfund that's ever been done. And it's really kind of underpinned the growth that we've built in our, in our company. So now anyone can go to our website and for £95 they can own an equity stake in our company and it also comes with a whole host of benefits. So this is not conventional equity investing. You own equity but you've also got lifetime discount in our bars, lifetime discounts in our online shop, access to forum. We engage our equity punks in the decisions we make and how we grow, how we develop our business. They help us choose which beers to make. They help us decide which cities to open bars in and they're very much part of the team and part of the journey that we are on as a company. So for us, Equity Punks has been really game-changing. So today we've built a company that employs 600 people. We're due to add another 400 people this year. Our flagship HQ where we make all the beer at the moment is up in Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. So we're not next door at the godfather of carpets anymore, but we're still, uh, we're still pretty close. And we've got 45 bars all over the planet. So we've got, I think it's 33 sites in the UK and 12 overseas, including flagship locations in Tokyo, Sao Paulo, Stockholm, we're soon to be opening in Berlin. We've also got five locations in London, so Camden, Shoreditch, Clapham, uh, Clerkenwell just opened, so hopefully some of you guys have been to some of our uh, London, London sites as well. Uh, where am I at in my list of things to say? Cool. A few other things that we can really believe in as a company, we believe in massively over-investing in our people. So we were the first company in the UK in both their respective industries to become a living wage employer. And for us, that's just the very kind of tip of the iceberg in terms of what we do for our team. And we've kind of grown quite a lot. And for me, my main focus at the moment is on, on the company, company culture, the team, the engagement and making sure that we keep everything that's made us awesome as we continue to grow. And so many businesses get bigger and they lose what's made them fantastic and it's something I'm determined that our business, business doesn't do. So that's kind of the story and here is the five, the five lessons. So this is when you need your notepads out. These are the five things that have kind of underpinned, underpinned the growth of our business. So thing number one, our company has got three building blocks. Uh, three building blocks which each one depends on the other two for its existence. They're mutually reinforcing and if we lose one, the whole thing falls to pieces. These three key building blocks have underpinned everything we've done from now, from when we started and underpin everything we do in the future. So the three building blocks are people, quality and gross margin. So people is how we would define our company culture. So we want to be an absolutely amazing company to work for. We want to 
be the best company to work for in the UK and beyond, and we do a whole host of things towards that. So we're a living wage employer, we pay enhanced pension contributions, we offer so much in-house training, we do beer sommelier training, we do IBD, which is Institute of Brewers and Distilling training, we pay for the exams, we pay for the study materials for each level that people pass, they get an instant pay rise in our company. Because we're growing so quickly, there's so many opportunities within our business for personal development. Um, we also do a whole host of things in terms of communications within our company to make sure everyone's up to speed. We want to give as much feedback engagement with our staff as possible. We want to have the absolute best people work in our company. We also put a huge emphasis on who we hire. So as leaders and as managers within our team, the most important decisions that we make is who we add to our teams. So when you're hiring someone, you're going to do one or two things. You're going to raise the average or you're going to lower the average. Those are the two options, and anyone who's hired in anyone in a team has got a responsibility to make sure they raise that average. And we've found that interviews are such a bad way to ascertain if someone's going to be a good fit for our business or not. In an interview, you find out if someone's good at doing an interview, you don't find out anything about that person at all. So we do so much to get beyond the interview when we're adding someone to the team, and every single time, all day long, we're going to hire for, for passion, for fit over and above CV experience and skill set. We want people that believe what we believe. We want people that are passionate about what we're passionate about. We want people that care so much about staff beer that's enthusiastic. And we want people that want to work in a fast-paced, sometimes chaotic environment. And the people part of this three-point formula is so important because without amazing people, you're not going to be able to deliver the quality that you need. So beer quality underpins pretty much everything we do. We live and die by what's in every single glass, by what's in every single bottle. So we are completely determined to make the best beers on the planet. Our beers are stupidly expensive to make. They take a stupid amount of time to make, and we've got to buy really expensive equipment to be able to make them to the standard that we need, but we don't give a damn. Our beers are expensive, but it's not about how much it costs, it's about doing something that's amazing. So if any of you guys have had punk IPA before, some of you hopefully, so that kiwi, lychee, mango, pineapple, passion fruit flavour that explodes out of the glass, that comes from adding a stupid amount of very expensive hops after fermentation. It means that the batches take twice as long to make, it means that we lose 20% of each batch which makes our costs of goods really high, but we don't care. It's all about making the best beers that we possibly can. So there's a quality of our core offering. And thirdly, there's the one that's not quite as exciting, not quite as sexy, but it's gross margin. So we've got to be able to make the margin that we need to be able to invest in the people and in the quality. So if we lose the margin, we can't invest in the people. If we can't invest in the people, we can't have something of the requisite quality, and if we don't have the quality, we can't get the margin that we need. So these are all mutually reinforcing, they're conjoined, they're the heart and soul of our business, and there's what's driven the growth that we've had so far. And as a company, the easiest thing to do is to sell on price. It is the crack cocaine of business. It is massively addictive, it gives you a short-term high, but the long-term consequences are always, always disaster. So any company that's got sales targets, the easiest way to hit those sales targets is by taking your price down, and that's something we've always refused to do. Our beers have been expensive, but we think they've offered good value for that price point. And we sell to all the major supermarkets in the UK and big customers overseas, guys who are notorious bullies when it comes to price, and our position has always been the same. 
this is what we make, this is how we make it, this is how much it costs. If you want to buy it, amazing. If you don't want to buy it, that's fine as well. But there's no discussion, there's no compromise whatsoever on that price point. And it means we've had to walk away from a lot of deals, but it's much better than discount and it's much better than losing the integrity of what you do and that's a slippery slope to nowhere and that means it then can't invest into making what you do amazing so three foundations people quality and the gross margin so we can invest in uh, in those two things the second thing that's been fundamental to us is a willingness to take risks in today's oversaturated crowded business environment playing it safe is, uh, is far too risky. Comfort zones are places where average people do mediocre things. If you're playing it safe, you're going to be so bland that you're going to fade into oblivion and no one is going to give a damn. So we've taken huge risks from the get-go. We gambled our entire future on equity for punks. We packaged beer in taxidermy. I parodied the Russian president Vladimir Putin um, with a special beer that we made for the Winter Olympics in, uh, in Russia. Uh, We wanted to make a stand against uh, Putin and Russia's position on homosexuality at the time of the Winter Olympics. So we made a beer called Hello, My Name is Vladimir. Uh, We gave gave all the the, the, um, proceeds of sales to charities which represent distressed minorities. And the marketing campaign, the photo for that was me half naked on a horse just like the famous uh, Vladimir Putin photo. So I can never go to Russia, but that's fine. I'll just get like, whished away when you, go through the, when you go through the passport control. Uh, we've dejected ourselves naked in the Houses of Parliament. We have thrown taxidermic cats out of a helicopter over central London. We've done so many pretty crazy things, but it's enabled us to cut through. It's enabled us to make an impact. It's enabled us to get people speaking about beer, speaking about what we do as a company, and it's enabled us to get some cut through and stand out. So we've taken huge risks at every single stage. We've also taken huge risks uh, from a business perspective as well. So we recently started building a sister facility to the one that we've got in Aberdeen in Columbus, Ohio. Out in, the, out in the Middle West of America. Um, I made the decision to do that after spending one day in Columbus, so I definitely didn't overthink it. Um, it's also a project which is going to cost us about £25 million. At the time that we signed off to do that, we had got £2 million in the bank. So, big risk, but we felt it was the right thing to do, and with confidence in our team's ability to figure out the best way to do it, to figure out a way to make it work. Um, that facility is now half built and we're still figuring out the best way to pay for it, but it'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, we, we kind of figured it out. The bit, what we're going to do, we're going to launch um, an American version of equity punks. So historically, um, you haven't been able to do that type of equity-based crowdfunding in the US. It's all been benefit-based like Kickstarter. The law changed uh, with the introduction of regulation A+. That changed about two months ago, so we're looking to take advantage of that and launch... Uh, American equity punks. And if that fails, we're going to take all the money that we raised in the UK equity punks, go to Vegas and put it all on black. <laughs> take risks. <laughs> uh, where's my other one? I've lost my next card. <laughs> um, yeah, the first thing internal is external. So, Business has changed so much in the last 
10 years, everything you do inside a company, everything you do inside an organization is reflected to the outside. So culture is marketing, marketing is culture, it's two sides of the same coin. What you do needs to be completely consistent, congruent inside your organization and outside your organization. It has to be the same. You can't be one thing externally and another thing inside. It's just going to crumble like a pack of cards. If you can't get your staff, your team to fall in love with something, there's no way you can get your customers to fall in love with it. So a massive focus on your team. And for me, company culture, how we are to our own team, to our people is equally important, if not more important, as to how we are externally. And both of those two things have got to be completely, completely consistent. And the final thing that's really kind of helped us drive things forward is we've learned the skills that we've needed to succeed and we've learned the skills that we needed to build our business. And that's where the kind of punk thing has really influenced us. For us, punk is about DIY, it's about bootlegging, it's about that kind of self-publishing mentality. So we had no money to pay anyone to come in and tell us how to do things, no money to pay for the business disease of the 21st century, which is consultants. So we learned the skills and we did things ourselves. And that's something we continue to do. Why the hell would we pay someone to tell us how to do what it is we do? They're not going to be as passionate about it as we are. They're not going to know as much about it as we are. They're not going to know our customers. They're not going to know our teams. They're not going to care as much. For them, it's a paycheck. For them, it's a consultancy fee. For us, this is life or death. This is if we can afford to move out with our parents, which at 26 and in Fraserburgh, the northeast of Scotland, was kind of high in our agenda after having to move back in with them. So we learned how to do absolutely everything because we had no other option. But that mentality meant that we could control our business. So if you don't have the skills, you're going to have to depend on advice. You're going to have to get people to tell you what you do. If you don't have the skills, you can't control your business. If you can't control your business, you're nothing but a dystopian shadow puppet at the helm of a sinking ship. Now, that one's for Muir Dickey at the Financial Times. <laughs> so massively important to learn the skills that you need to succeed. So whatever you guys are doing... In business, if you don't know something, if you don't understand something, don't depend on anyone's advice. Learn about it, get under its skin, and then make a decision yourself. Don't listen to advice, make your own mistakes, do things in your own terms. And the key message of the key message of the book and the key thing that's kind of driven our business, we had no idea what we were supposed to be doing. So we just went ahead and did things in our own terms and did things how we wanted to, to do them. So in the 21st century, the ways of doing business has changed so much. Interconnectivity, digital technology, differences in consumers. Consumers want something to, to believe in. They no longer just want to buy something. They want to engage with a company. They want to buy something when the company's vision and mission and ethos aligns with theirs. They want to do something which mutually reinforces their own belief systems. They want to buy something they can believe in, something they can go on a long-term journey with. It's no longer about the product. Simon Sinek, who wrote, for me, the best business book in the last hundred years with Start With Why, said it's people don't buy what you, what you make, what you do. They buy why you do it. So that mission, that ethos, that passion has to be the absolute core of anything, anything you guys go on to do in business or anything you're looking to do. So things have changed a lot. Ignore advice. Do things in your own terms. Make your own mistakes. Have fun and Never forget, it's, uh, it's just a game. I also say in the book to ignore advice, which means by default you should go and tear up all the notes you took just now. <laughs> cool.
All right, we've got, uh, we've got a little bit of time. We've got about uh, 30 minutes, uh, 25 minutes for questions now. Uh, can I just remind everybody in the audience to please say your name and affiliation uh, before you present the question? Uh, start here at the front. Uh, by the way, before we get to this question, just thanks for giving up some of your, uh, some of your evening to come and listen about your company. Uh, David Turner, University of York. Um, I've been involved, sort of following the, the craft beer movement, and I remember when you first burst onto the scene. Um, and my question is, you say in the book quite clearly that you haven't taken advice. Now, you work very closely on collaborative brews with other breweries. Yeah. You, um, you have in your bars other breweries' beers, not Camden, of course, <laughs> anymore. So I'm just interested, yeah. as being at that forefront of the movement, do you personally give advice to new breweries setting up? Do they come to you? Do they talk to you? Yeah. Um, cool. Thanks for the question. Um, awesome, awesome polo neck thing, by the way. It's pretty cool. I'm expecting to see you like jump through a window with a box of chocolates. It <laughs> <laughs> was my favourite advert back in the day. It was amazing. Um, yeah. Um, they, they do come to us for advice, and what, what has been amazing is how the UK beer industry has changed since 2007, and we like to think we've been a, a small part and a catalyst for that change, and our mission is to get people excited about fantastic beer, so we want people to enjoy great beer, so that's not just our beer, we just don't want people to drink mass market generic beer, so if, it's, if they're drinking punk IPA, if they're drinking beer from Beavertown, if they're drinking beer from Lovey Bonds, from Magic Rock, from Stone in California, and we like to think that all these kind of craft beer companies, if they're doing well, we're going to steal market share together from the big beer companies. So we're competing together against the big beer companies. So we, we do collaborations. That's why, that's why half of the taps that we have in our bars are guest taps. So we carefully select a lot of our, our favourite beers and stuff. And a lot of these guys do come, come for advice and we give them advice where we can. But we also caveat it with, this is what we think, but... There might be a much better way to do it. This is just what's worked for us and see where we get to. But that kind of sense of community collaboration within the craft beer industry is one of the fantastic things about the industry and it's something that we love playing a part in. Um, I think there's a question up there at the top on the right. Uh, hello, my name's Matt. Um, I actually work for a market research company, and part of that is testing some of the uh, mass market beers that you uh, you don't like. Um, my question is: You say that um, so your beers are very expensive. Yeah. Um, you don't want to compete on price. You have a good quality product. If you're not going to compete on price, does that mean that there's a does it mean that there's a limit, and you think there's always going to be a mass market there at a lower price? Or do you think there's a kind of a sea change in the, you know, in people's tastes as a whole? Well, I think there's definitely a, a sea change at the moment. If you look at the beer industry in the UK, craft beer over the last few years has grown at about 30% year on year, whereas the big beer companies have been flat or in a slight decline. So there's definitely a, a sea change. But in the overall scheme of things, we and craft beer are tiny. So we are 0.1% of the UK beer market at the moment. That means only one beer in every thousand drunk is is one of the beers that we make. So there's always going to be there's always going to be mass market mainstream beers there. And what we want to do is move the mass market consumer towards us a little bit. We definitely don't want to move towards that mass market consumer. And what I always say to the team is we won't determine 
where we get to as a company. We don't set long-term targets. We don't have long-term goals. We can determine the following things. We can determine what we do. We can determine how we position it. We can determine the price point we set. And everything else is going to be determined by the customer, by the market. And we're not going to compromise anything at all about what we believe in to get to a certain position or be a certain size. So that means as long as we're putting our heart and soul into each and every beer, as long as we're doing something we're passionate about, whatever size we are is the size that we're meant to be. And we're going to be happy with that as a company. Um, uh, yeah, good luck testing mass market beers for a job. That sounds like hell. <laughs> um, there's uh, quite a few questions now. We're going to take a, a couple of questions, if that's okay, and one go. Um, please, uh, the lady at the back row over there first, and then we'll take a uh, man with the beard over there. Hi, James. You've been drinking. Is that some of your own beer up there? Because I'd like to sample it. <laughs> Is it? Um, just... Just because I love each and every single one of you guys, collectively and individually, um, you, were, you will all get a goodie bag on exit, which oh, contains lovely. two cans of this beer. <laughs> That's okay then, thanks. James, <laughs> uh, um, um, just Perhaps a quick... I've got a bigger clap than the Mother Teresa story. Ah. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes up for it. Um, James, as you're there, um, I'm not an elitist. Um, I haven't seen your beer in the supermarket, although now I will go and find it. Um, do you think you're being a bit um, unfair to those on the lower bracket, you know, like some people can't afford your beer? I don't know the price, you don't need to tell me today, but, you know, are you thinking of us people that maybe can't get jobs at the moment but like our beer? Um, our, our beers are, in the overall scheme of things, our beers are not that expensive. Our beers are about 20% more than a standard mass market beer. So if you compare our beer to a Heineken or a Stella, only 20% more. But if you compare what goes in it, we're going to have twice the amount of malted barley in there. We're going to have 30 to 35 times the amount of hops in there. It's going to take us twice as long to make. So if you compare what you're getting in value terms, and also if you look at the wine industry, the world's best wines cost... 10, 20, 100 times more than the world's worst wines. If you look at the beer industry, the best beers on the planet cost 20 to 30% more than the standard mass market beers. So we think although it costs a little bit more, it offers, offers a huge amount more value and it still hits an accessible price point. You can buy this for like 180 a can in, in supermarkets and stuff, so it's not massively expensive. Okay. Um, got the man of the beer over there. Hi, um, I'm Pranav from LSE. Oh, there you go. Uh, I just wanted to say I really admire the whole ethos of the, the company. Um, I didn't know too much about BrewDog until today, so I, I guess it's good I didn't. Uh, what drew me to it is there's been an idea in my head last year that I've been waiting to kind of come up with, and I'm still wondering how and when I'm going to yeah. come out with it, if I do. But then there was also this documentary that the BBC did called Music for Misfits, The Story of Indie. Okay. If you haven't watched it, I'd re recommend yourself and anyone to watch it. And it okay. goes from the 70s, 80s, 90s, that whole DIY culture, independence movements. And now, like, you look in fashion and music, all of that is coming back, harking back to the 90s. And I just wanted to say, like, uh, you know, it's, it's refreshing to, to see that and inspiring for myself if I ever do get anything off. And the question I was going to say is, uh, is there any, uh, are you avail available to chat after? <laughs> <laughs> and if not, is there another way of, 
you know, arranging. Um, I've got to, I've got to head off uh, reasonably sharpest. So I'm going to do about 15 minutes more questions. And I'm going to sign some books. Then sure. I'm going to have to dash off. Sure. But uh, I'm on, I'm on Twitter and all, all those right. kind of things. So just, uh, yeah, just give me a shout out on Twitter and I'll see what I can do. We've got um, one question at the back, but if you don't mind, sorry um, to keep you waiting. The lady over here um, first. Hi, um, I'm Elle. I work for a media agency, and I'm just really interested. What is your advertising strategy? Just because I haven't really seen that much. We, um, like, I drink the beer, but I've never really seen you guys advertising. So um, our, our advertising strategy is I would rather set fire to my money than waste it on advertising. <laughs> our advertising strategy is that advertising is a dying medium. It's going the same way as the dinosaurs. Consumers don't care. They want something that engages them. They want something to believe in. And if you look at conventional advertising, it's all about budget. It's about how much TV, radio, billboard space you can buy. We couldn't compete with the big beer companies. We would just get completely lost. If you look at how we focus our market and efforts, online engagement, connectivity, transparency, quality focus, we, can't, we can not only compete with the big beer companies, but because we do something with honesty and transparency, we can knock the complete spots off them. So we want to play the game in our terms where we can be strong as opposed to use something which I think is a, a dead medium. Sorry. <laughs> That's why you haven't seen our advertising. Um, we've got the gentleman with the white shirt. Hi, James. Uh, my name's James Watson. Don't think we're related, but I guess I must have been your son at some point. Um, two questions from me. Uh, firstly, have you given any thought as to where you want to be in 10 years' time? Uh, so, and the second question is born out of the fact I went to see the film Joy a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about a, a, a woman who... Uh, very similar inspirational story about a, a startup business. Her startup business wasn't beer, it was a vacuum cleaner, and the star is played by Jennifer Lawrence. So, my question is, is when your story gets made into a film, who's going to play you? <laughs> oh, sorry, who would you like to play you? Um, so, the first question um, where we're going to be in 10 years, I don't know where I'm going to be in two weeks. Um, and we, we don't like business plans, we don't like long-term plans, it's just glorified guesswork, it's a waste of brain power. Where we end up in 10 years is not as important as to how we act and how we get to where we're going to end up. So where we're going to get to in 10 years is out of our hands, so we don't focus on it. Um, as for playing me in the film, um, Darth Vader. <laughs> right, we had somebody waiting over here on this row. Hello, I'm Rocky. I'm a student here, and I run a society to introduce students to the alcohol industry. And I just wanted to, yeah, so, the premium, premium alcohol. It's noble work. Yeah. So as you said, the large beer producers are on the decline, and craft beer is very much on the rise. Now you see a trend where these large beer producers are buying out some of the smaller ones, like Ballast Point was just bought out. How do you see that affecting your collaboration with other craft breweries in the future? Um, yeah, it, it's been quite quite an unusual time for our industry. It started out with what was dubbed sellout September in the US where uh, Lagunitas was sold to Heineken, uh, Golden Roads was sold to AB InBev, that continued with Ballast Point being sold to the company that, sold, that owns Corona, Camden was recently sold to AB InBev, Meantime was sold to SEB Miller, this, this is amazing, Meantime was sold to SEB Miller in March who said they're committed to it, it's long term, it's all about London. Two months after they were making Meantime beers in Holland, passing it off as made in London, and then in November they announced Meantime was up for sale again. So, so much for a long-term commitment and focusing on London. But it's, uh, 
um, a lot less loud. So yeah, I think it's dangerous. I think big, big beer companies have made their stance pretty much clear when it comes to beer. They want to bastardize it, they want to homogenize it, they want to pull the wool over the customer's eyes and, and deceive them, and they want to maximize return for their shareholders. There's an amazing quote um, that's in an actual book from the guy who runs um, AB InBev, and the quote is, costs are like fingernails, you've got, got to constantly cut them. And uh, we, we don't believe that at all. We believe in over-investing in what's important to us, and what's important to us is our beer and our people. So does a customer want to buy something from a company that's going to constantly cut costs when it comes to the product, or a company that's going to over-invest when it comes to the, the product? And I think the fact that big beer companies are in decline are symptomatic of something that's happening in a wider trend across so many industries. Consumers are more and more aware of how the things that they consume are made, where they come from, the type of companies that are making them, the ethics of those companies, how those companies treat their own staff, what goes into it. And I think staff beer doing so well is a small microcosm and part of a much larger movement, and I see that trend continuing across all industries. Well, I'm not bitter about the meantime thing or anything. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a couple of questions at the top front row over here. Um, my name's Dan. I work in an ad agency. Um, I, I agree with your assessment of advertising as well, but if you don't like it, change it. It's sort of my philosophy. Um, I don't think I'll be successful, but why not try? Um, Mike, you pointed out you sort of want to hire people with sort of enthusiasm, passion for your beers. Um, my thought would be the best way to assess that would be an interview rather than any other process. How do you go about assessing people's passion, energy, willing to work in a chaotic environment, how, how do you find that? Uh, we, we, do, we do a whole host of things, so we just want to get them outside the interview setting, so we, we, um, we take them 10-pin bowling, we take them for dinner, we put them in front of our customers, we put them in front of a panel of our team, we make them deliver a beer tasting to some of our customers, and we kind of sit in on that. We make them, um, if they're going to be in digital marketing, we make them come up with digital marketing plans and pitch them to us. If they're going to be fixing our bottling machine, we intentionally remove some parts and send them in a mission to go and fix it. So we give them kind of real challenges and engage them as to what they're going to be doing, but then we do so many things to find out how they interact with our team, how they bond with us in a social setting as well. So we have a, a manager in the company which is hire slowly, fire quickly. And that's something that's very important to us. So I've actually fired people on their first day before just because I felt they haven't been a good fit for a company. And it sounds pretty savage and it sounds brutal, and it is, but it's much better than the slow and agile degradation of our company culture, which is what will happen if we've got people as part of the team who are not right for our business. I think we had another question up there on the third row from the back. Hi there, my name's King. Um, I'm also from the University of York, so hello down there, fellow alumni, and I'm an ex-management consultant. I just want to ask you, um, how much, because BrewDog is defined so much by, by its own personality, this personality you and your team have brilliantly created, and I think that really reflects on your own personality too. I wanted to ask how that personality compares now as to kind of back when you first created it. Yeah, I think... It, de it definitely has evolved since 2007. The company's evolved, the people's evolved slightly. I think our personality in 2007 reflected the UK beer industry at the time and how loud we had to shout to cut through, how loud we had to shout to, to get heard. 
no one knew what draft beer was in the UK back in 2007. So I think our position has evolved as the industry has evolved, and I think we've been a catalyst for that evolution of the, of the industry. So now there's, as opposed to just kind of making a stand and, and getting people to kind of take note of what we do, there's much more of a focus on education, on information. I think if you're selling anything that's artisanal, that's different, you're not selling a product, but you're selling that information, that understanding, that knowledge, and we want to empower the customer to make the best decisions that they can, and we do that through engagement and education. Uh, we had um, a few more questions. We probably only have a room for maybe three more questions, so I'm just going to take a gentleman at the back with a grey jumper. Hello, how's it going? Um, my name is Ross, I'm an LSE graduate down here, but uh, I'm from Glasgow, and um, first of all, thank you for the talk. Uh, to my utter delight, you opened up your own branch right next to Glasgow University on Kelvin Grove, and that's where my love affair with the whole craft beer thing started. But I guess what I want to know is how important do you still feel being headquartered in Scotland is, especially at a time where we're constantly under scrutiny about whether we're going to follow Alex Salmond or Sturgeon into the great unknown. And equally, with the kind of slowdown with the oil in the northeast, do you see yourself staying up there? Or what's the plan? Are you going to be Scottish, I guess? Uh, we're a Scottish company, and we will remain headquartered in Scotland forever. Sure and sweet. Um, a couple more questions. Please make them very, very quick. Um, gentleman in the middle uh, with the blonde hair, yes? If it's not too difficult to get there. I was just wondering what motivated you to move into the uh, bar industry? Because obviously like, a lot of large breweries have uh, affiliations to bars. It's quite different for a sort of smaller brewery to have that. I can kind of see how it fits with the ethos, but why did you make that decision and when did it come? Everything we do as a company is completely selfish. So we don't do market research, we don't do any of that, and we make the beers that we want to drink ourselves, so the beers that we make are beers that we want to enjoy, and it's exactly the same with the bar division. So we couldn't find anywhere in Aberdeen that we wanted to go and hang out and have a beer, so we decided to open somewhere. And we wanted to open somewhere with passionate, knowledgeable, evangelical bar staff. We wanted to open somewhere that would, we could build an amazing team and for far too long kind of service and, and teams and bar staff in the UK have been so bad people see it as a stopgap, no one cares. We wanted to make it a profession, we wanted to pay these people amazingly well, we wanted to offer training, we wanted to offer tradition and give, that, give us a platform to have an amazing team which create an amazing environment. We wanted to create a selection of the best beers from all over the planet. Uh, we wanted to create an environment with with no TVs, no sports, no TVs that people would sit and watch like zombies as opposed to speaking to each other. So, yeah, it's just completely selfish. We wanted to make a place that we want to hang out in ourselves. And so many people said when we opened the Aberdeen one, oh, what's this? You're going to be closed within three months. It's a waste of time, whatever. And that kind of thing's just music to our ears. We love it when people say that. Um, and, yeah, from our Aberdeen base, we've now opened 45, and the 45th one was back in Aberdeen, which was quite cool to open that just in December. So, yeah, completely selfish. Thank you. Right, um, just behind you, there's a gentleman with a grey jumper, and I'm really sorry because this is going to have to be the last question. Take one more after this because I'm going to answer this one in 10 seconds. Okay, all right. Yeah, this is a really simple one. I just wanted to ask, what's your favourite brew dog and non-brew dog beer? 
Uh, favourite with Doodrag beer is like asking someone who their favourite child is. And the great <laughs> thing about fantastic beer, it's that stylistic diversity. So sometimes I want the savage, bitter, hoppy, pithy, resinous hit of an IPA. Sometimes I want the decadent opulence of an imperial stout. Sometimes I want the mouth-puckering acidity of a Belgian lambic. Sometimes I want the crisp snap of a pilsner. Sometimes I want the caramel, malty, toasted marshmallow ghee awesomeness of a, of a scotch ale. Sometimes I want something aged in a scotch whiskey cask. Yeah, jackhammer. <laughs> in 10 seconds um, one final question at the top hi um, so you said that you don't have uh, you don't have any, hello, you don't have sales targets so my question is how do you measure the impact of your employees contributing to your company and how do you ensure that they're progressing uh, in their career well for the last four years we've been the fastest growing food and drinks company in the in, in the UK, so that kind of regression within the company for our employees is so, so important to us. So we, we obviously monitor sales and we monitor growth within the company, but what we don't do is have hit-at-all-cost targets and targets that we push to hit. We focus on the things which we can control, the things which are important to us, so our beer quality, our positioning, and we've got a great team of fantastic people and we over-invest in those people. And as long as we're doing those things, we just see where we get to. We do monitor things, but we just don't push to hit certain targets. Very good. Um, well, we, I think we're, we've run out of time for questions, but James will stay here uh, doing uh, some book signings for the next 15 minutes or so. Um, before you leave, obviously, as well as the goodies that have been very kindly provided by BrewDog, there are some books and... Uh, I'm not trying to do a sales speech, but I really, really enjoy this book. So um, I hope you do too. Um, and then finally, thank you very much to everyone for attending. And please do join me in, in also thanking James for his amazing contribution tonight. <laughs>